Welcome to the Arate Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Raina Sinathambi, Managing Director of Springfield Land Corporation. It's great to have you along today, and I was delighted to be able to interview Raina for the Arate podcast, given we'd never met before, but certainly I was very familiar with her and her organisation, Springfield Land Corporation, which has been achieving amazing things in the property world here in Queensland and recognised globally for what they've been able to create as a new satellite city to Brisbane. Before I bring you this conversation with Raina, let me first introduce myself for those people who are new to the Arate podcast. My name is Richard Triggs and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive and we recruit CEOs, senior leaders and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. So if I can assist you with any recruitment requirements within your organisation, please don't hesitate to make contact. Let me now introduce to you Raina Sinathambi. Raina was born in Malaysia and moved as a young child with her family to Perth, Australia, before relocating later to Brisbane, Queensland. She completed her degree in law and worked as a solicitor prior to joining Springfield Land Corporation in 1998 as their director corporate. In February 2013, Raina was appointed to managing director of the Springfield Land Corporation. Greater Springfield is an award-winning project encompassing six suburbs and is home to approximately 30,000 people. It has been awarded as the world's best master-planned community, as well as numerous other awards, both in Australia and globally. Rainer has also served as the Vice President and President of the Queensland Division of the Property Council of Australia and is on the board of the National Board of the Property Council of Australia. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Raina Sinathambi. Well, hi, Raina. Uh, welcome to the Aratate podcast. It's great to have you along as a guest, and we're sitting out here at Springfield in your tower on the top floor with a beautiful view out there to uh, you know some forest lands and so on. Um, thanks for joining us. Perhaps just to begin with, uh, why don't you let us know a little bit about your current professional responsibilities? Uh, thanks, Richard. I'm uh, Rainer Nathanby, and I'm managing director at Springfield Land Corporation. It's a very, very interesting project that's into its 24th year. Mm-hmm. So essentially, over the last 24 years, we've been developing six suburbs, which mm-hmm. is collectively known as Greater Springfield. Mm-hmm. And uh, the land holding itself is about 3,000 hectares. And over time, we want to build it as a true live, learn, work, play community um, to essentially ensure that people can live a wonderful life here, mm-hmm. but that they can also get great education opportunities for themselves and their families, and also to, as much far as possible, provide them local jobs. Mm-hmm. So we have a, a goal within our organisation to provide one job for every three of our residents. Wow, okay. And it's quite an ambitious goal, but uh-huh. I think if we can do that, mm-hmm. it really provides uh, that people can have a good work-life balance mm-hmm. 
and ultimately if you can drop your kids off to school or childcare, university and be at work within a 10 minute drive, we think that's a pretty good Absolutely. lifestyle offering for people. And uh, I, as somebody who's recruited into the property industry for about 14 years, you know, I've been you know, well aware of uh, how things have uh, evolved here over that period of time, but it'll be good to later in the podcast talk about some of the key milestones. Um, and mm-hmm. certainly in terms of as a, uh, a project, it's gained international recognition and won a lot of awards, hasn't it? It definitely has, yeah. I think it's been part of the journey is to hit some of those milestones along the way and mm-hmm. certainly awards are one of them. Mm-hmm. You've got somebody staring in at us, wondering no, what's going away. on. They've run away now. <laughs> Very good. So um, uh, I know that there's a family connection, obviously. So why don't we start there and, you know, go back to where it all began for you and talk to us about, you know, where you were born and mum and dad and early life. Okay. So I was born in Kuala Lumpur, uh-huh. but I did not live there very long. In mm-hmm. fact, when I was one, I, we moved to Australia. Right. So my dad had studied in Sydney, mm-hmm. uh, done his engineering degree there. My mum had studied in the UK, she did nursing. And my dad returned to Malaysia after his studies right. and worked for a time as an engineer across a number of projects but ultimately there was a lot of unrest in Malaysia at the time mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and he was drawn obviously to come come back to Australia and mm-hmm. bring his family along right. to And why did he originally choose to study in Australia versus elsewhere in the world? Look, I think at that time it was probably down to cost. Okay. Um, Generally, my grandparents wanted the best for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, they weren't people of immense resources mm-hmm. at all in terms of um, wealth, mm-hmm. uh, but they knew that opportunities were around, yeah. and they put him on a boat, uh-huh. and sent him off to Sydney, right. and waved him and trusted that he would get a good education there. Okay. And was he uh, with your mum at the time? Not at the time that he studied, no. Right, he okay. was uh, He'd just sort of sent here on his own. Right. He had a few siblings that were in Australia. Okay. And were doing, you know, okay for themselves. Right. In terms of studying their way through life. And uh, and so he sort of came to join them. Mm-hmm. Wasn't a particularly, mm-hmm. you know, star student. But right. But battled his way through an engineering degree and okay. got out the other hand. Oh, very good. And uh, when he went back uh, to KL... What was the um, intention, what life was he trying to build there prior to deciding to come back to Australia? Well, it's uh, probably a question for him, but look, I think uh, he wanted to be the best engineer. He'd always had an ambition for developing. He uh, was working on a number of World Bank projects. They took him out of Malaysia, sort of through Southeast Asia, delivering Mm -hmm. some of those projects. He was very ambitious, you know, it's just like in his DNA. Yeah. Uh, so, but I think the the circumstances in Malaysia at the time uh, were challenging mm-hmm. and they found it difficult. My mum and dad uh, was soon married after okay. he got back to uh, Malaysia and he, uh, I think soon after their marriage, their house was burgled. Right. This was part of the civil unrest that okay. was occurring at the time. Mm-hmm. And a lot of their wedding gifts and things mm. were stolen, and it's probably at that point that he kind of decided, okay, right. this is like the turning point. Sure. And um, he had probably a desire to move back to Australia, mm-hmm. but I think this triggered it to right. let's just go. Yeah. And how old were you then? 
I was probably a few months off. Oh, really? Okay. My dad left early and took off and uh, to, I guess, look for a job mm-hmm. and find out how we would settle into this place. Mm-hmm. He, uh, we moved to Perth. Mm-hmm. So he went there first. He had a brother that lived there. And so he just used that as a bit of a base to mm-hmm. find a job for himself. Okay. Uh, it wasn't a roaring time in the Australian economy, so mm-hmm. my mum stayed back. She had three kids, young mm-hmm. kids as mm-hmm. well, so she wanted to make sure that things were a bit more settled by the time she right. came. So and you were the youngest of three? I was middle. Middle, okay. And uh, so once um, my younger sister was born, uh, after a month of her being born, my mum came and joined my dad in right. Perth. Right, okay. Yeah. And what was happening uh, in Perth uh, for your dad at the time, business-wise? So it was a very uh, lean economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was very few jobs around. Mm-hmm. I think particularly engineering jobs weren't you know, rolling out the door. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he told my mum a few stories about the job prospects. Okay, he talked it up. <laughs> talked it up. Right. And uh, he is a believer, but he was literally... Uh, finding it very tough to find a job. Mm-hmm. Um, he did find a job selling rulers door to door. Right. So he did that for a bit, and he he really uh, uh, struggled his way through, but ultimately found a job uh, as a civil engineer in the wa- on the water board. Okay. Um, in the WA state government. Uh huh. Yeah. I imagine yeah. as somebody with a highly entrepreneurial streak, that would have been a, a little frustrating. Yeah, it just, right. I think, drove him crazy. Okay. I think. Not not drove him crazy, but he just got his job done in mm-hmm. probably half the time that right. was expected of him. Yeah. People told him to slow down a bit. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, you're starting uh, school? Yeah. So yeah. Um, pretty much, uh, probably even before I started school, I can't really recall, but... He started his own business, so he left the government mm-hmm. after working with them some time and started his own business. Okay. And so then I um, obviously started at school, mm-hmm. grew up um, there. Uh, I also, by that time, my mum had a um, our fourth sibling, which is um, my brother, okay. Naren. So mom, I think my dad, more than anyone, wanted always wanted a son, right. so he came into the equation, which was great. And so we all grew up in Perth, mm-hmm. um, were fortunate enough to live and school there in a great environment and we mm-hmm. loved the city. Uh, my dad had a lot of his siblings there, so those were people that we spent a lot of time with. Uh, we lived in a beautiful, you know, leafy suburb mm-hmm. and went to a fantastic school um, in Perth. Um, and yeah, I think made the best of the opportunities that mm-hmm. we had presented to us. Okay. And how far did you get in terms of your schooling before you moved over to uh, Queensland? So I moved to Queensland in, when I was in year 10. Okay. And uh, so I found that quite quite a distraction. I bet. And I wasn't very happy, let my parents know, and, and pretty <laughs> much have been letting them know ever since. Right. <laughs> it took me a long time to love Brisbane, and certainly my I didn't really um, find that transition easy mm-hmm. but on reflection it's like the best thing that I've done in life because mm-hmm. it really teaches you how to adapt and, oh, sure. and life is about adapting to mm-hmm. situations so on reflection it taught me a whole lot about adapting and um, ultimately I finished my school years here but then I really wanted to, to leave for a while I think yeah. 
just to be able to appreciate what I had, I had to get out of here mm-hmm. for. So mm-hmm. I went to Sydney and Canberra for a couple of years. Uh, prior to going to university? No, this was... So I went to university in uh, Sydney okay. and then I transferred to ANU right. for a couple of years with yeah. my sister. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately moved back to Brisbane right. to finish my degrees. Uh, in, uh, in law? In law, yeah. So I did an arts law degree okay. at the University of Queensland mm-hmm. with a major in Japanese. Right. And, interesting um, combination. Yeah, it was an interesting combination. I think my dad, when, when we came to Queensland, was really fascinated that uh, the schools were offering Asian languages right. and hadn't become a thing in, in Perth at okay. the time we were there. Mm-hmm. And uh, so obviously we, um, you know, the Japanese economy was going very well and a lot of uh, schools were offering Japanese. Mm -hmm. I didn't do it and do Japanese at school, but I had the opportunity to do it at university, Mm -hmm. so I took it up. Okay. And uh, Springfield had commenced prior to moving the family here, hadn't it? No, Springfield only commenced in 92. We moved here in the 80s, actually. Oh, okay, yeah. right, okay. Yeah. So um, what was it that brought the family to Brisbane originally then? Yeah, I think it was opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what we saw the East Coast offered okay. a lot. The other thing is that my father was doing a lot of projects on the Eastern Coast. Okay, and um, land development projects. Land development uh, uh property acquisition, mm-hmm. property redevelopment. Okay. So uh, across pretty much New South Wales, Queensland, even Adelaide. Mm-hmm. And um, so we moved here, I guess, because he, he had spent a lot of time here away from us. Mm-hmm. And so this was, I, I guess, a way to sort of say, well, allow more sure. family time for myself by okay. living here. And do you, uh, you think at that stage you were thinking that you'd end up working in a career with your father or you wanted to go and, you know, uh, blaze your own trail? Yeah, I definitely didn't think that I'd end up working with my father. Mm -hmm. I I guess um, because I... My main area of study was in the law. Mm -hmm. So So what was the motivation to combine law with Japanese? And did you... Was it just... It was something you had a personal interest in or did you have a plan in terms of how you'd incorporate those two qualifications? Look, I I don't think I had a plan, but I thought it was a good combination of skills to have. Right. And I thought it it would um, present opportunities. Okay. And I did, uh, even during my studies, um, my sister and I were fortunate enough to work in Japan for a while. Okay. Uh, two trips, two different trips that we did. And the second trip, we both worked in a different law firm mm-hmm. each. Okay. And so that was a great experience. Right. Like, it was, um, yeah, okay. a great opportunity. And, and what specific sort of uh, stream of law did you uh, see yourself, you know, following property property yeah right so property was in the blood (laughs) it was just not uh necessarily to uh to work within the family uh business yeah i think so right okay so uh sydney then uh canberra Mm -hmm. and then what brought you back to brisbane well i think ultimately we wanted to be back with our family Mm -hmm. Um, so me and my sister had been down there and um you know the the draw of being back with our families and um, in the warm Brisbane climate right. certainly appealed. Okay. So yeah, we returned here and mm-hmm. finished our degrees here. Right, and then you went and worked in a law firm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Which was. So I uh, sort of uh, had a couple of starts. So uh, firstly with uh, two small organisations, but ultimately ended up finishing my articles at Allen Allen and Hemsley. Mm-hmm. 
and um, which was a great experience for me. Uh, I ended up in the property section as well, so it was kind of following just a general interest that I had yeah. growing up my whole life. It was mm-hmm. kind of like a expected transition that I had, mm-hmm. and I really enjoyed working, you know, in property in the um, in the projects that my clients were doing mm-hmm. and, and I got to see a lot of things which was interesting to me and um, I think when you are you know developments in your DNA and you see it and you can be exposed to different types of development from shopping centers mm-hmm. to office to um, land development it really gives you an idea of what's possible mm-hmm. so that was a very interesting experience for me mm-hmm. and uh it is an uncommon pathway for somebody coming from law to move into a development space as compared to some of the more typical ones. But when, at what point was it that you decided that you wanted to step away from working as a, a pure lawyer and, and come into a broader you know, leadership role within the development industry? I think, well, <laughs> well, Richard, what really happened is my dad asked me, look, he was kind of watching me from afar and uh-huh. I think he saw I was really enjoying what I was doing. Mm-hmm. But he also, um, we talked a lot and I, I think he thought I, I could help him where he was, you know, doing his mm-hmm. development and Springfield was a very different place at the time mm-hmm. and a small organisation. So he said, come and try it for a year right, and see how you like it. And... Um, so it was quite a big step for me, really, sure. to come from a you know very fancy law firm mm-hmm. uh, to a very small uh, organisation doing mm-hmm. this one project called Springfield. Mm-hmm. And and actually, you know, to be honest, we had other projects across Brisbane, primarily Brisbane, um, but we slowly let them go as Springfield got got momentum mm-hmm. over the years. Okay, yeah. and uh, I imagine. That, that would have been an interesting conversation. There would have been some uh, rules of engagement uh, as to how you were going to step in and work well together. I can't even imagine for a minute working with one of my parents. So uh, <laughs> you know, what were some of the considerations at the time? Well, I just... I, I think the way I looked at it and I think the way that, you know, you build your own little role in an organisation is just to do your job. Mm-hmm. That That's the way I kind of have always approached it, not mm-hmm. because I thought... I better approach it like that. I just thought that's the natural thing. If I was working for anyone else, I'd just be coming there, doing the best job I could possibly do for the organisation and, and then go home. Mm-hmm. And kind of that's the way I dealt with dealt with it. At that time, obviously, my father was MD. My mum was also working in the business, oh, okay. doing all of our conveyancing. Right. I had my older sister working there as well. Mm-hmm. And the team was really small. It was about 11-odd people. Right. So, like, nearly half of it's your family. Sure. And so what was the original role that you were brought in to do then? So I was brought in as uh, director corporate, and mm-hmm. but really <laughs> the organisation was so small, Richard, you could just do anything that... Right. So many things needed to be done. Yeah. If you put your hand up for it, guess what? Right. You got the job. <laughs> so, look, I um, just naturally, like, my skills lent itself to do legal work. Mm-hmm. So I um, did as much of that as I could mm-hmm. find in the organisation. And certainly if it saved us legal fees, that was a good thing. Yeah. So I tried to do uh, that as part, major part of my role. Mm-hmm. But then I... 
I just got involved in things that interested me or that needed attention. Mm -hmm. So that was everything from uh, learning about the the corporate and tax structures of the organisation uh, to understanding a bit more about the marketing that the organisation needed to do, um, the comms. Uh, at that time, we had a nursery. I was doing a little bit of bits and bobs with okay. that too. So basically, as I said, if you got had a right interest or showed inkling towards anything, you just mm-hmm. got the job. Right, and uh, I imagine like a lot of my friends uh, stepping in as second generation into businesses probably not being paid as much as you would in a, uh, another environment either. So uh, um, you mentioned that you moved away from this glamorous office in the middle of the CBD and working for you know what is regarded as one of the top law firms. Um, was there any uh, remorse about you know leaving that career path? Yeah, look, I think um, I'm drawn to law naturally as a mm-hmm. person just because of the background that I've had. So I, I did uh, have to think about that over the, you know, the first couple of years mm-hmm. that I was here. But quite early in the time that I was here, um, we did a major transaction. And I was at the coalface of the transaction mm-hmm. with one of our other directors. And that was a really great experience for okay. me. And had I been in a law firm, maybe I would have seen just sure. a small part of the mm-hmm. transaction. But being in a small organisation right at the coalface, mm-hmm. then I got to you know really be at the coalface and engage in the transaction. Mm-hmm. And I think that really gave me the, the push over the edge okay. that I was looking for to stay. Right. Because... My dad had always said, just try it out. And of course he wanted me to stay. Mm-hmm. But I think maybe if it hadn't been for that, I would have looked to le- to go back to my legal career. Okay. But that was so exciting for me to mm-hmm. be involved in. Okay. And it was kind of just the tip of the iceberg, really. Um, I thought to myself, how could almost get better than that? Mm-hmm. And it's just got better and better right. since then. So uh, describe what Springfield looked like when you came into the organisation in terms of uh, you know, how it uh, presented and then some of the key milestones from then to now as okay. a major development. Yep. So actually the land holding was a forestry operation when mm-hmm. we bought it. So a lot of the area was timbered for decades but generally it's just looking like a forest. Mm -hmm. When I came, uh, I was, I thought, quite fortunate because about close to a 1,000 lots had been developed. And so there was probably around 600 people living here. So Mm -hmm. there's always this lag from when you sell a lot to when people actually live here. So about 600 people living here. We had a small shopping Mm centre. But... uh, and then there was our office and I think the school had just opened. Mm-hmm. So it was really quite a small community. Um, like there's nowhere to buy latte or cappuccino right. or, you know, focaccias or anything like that. There's basically a little yeah. eatery down the road that mm-hmm. we all used to drive our car there, get right. our lunch every, every lunchtime. So it was a very small community. Mm-hmm. And, but when you're in our office... All you talk about is, wow, this is going to be a city mm-hmm. and we're going to have this highway and blah, blah, blah. And you talk about it so much, you just totally brainwashed and right. you believe it. Every bone of your body believes it. Mm-hmm. And um, But when you look at the community and you, and you see what's there, you see maybe 600 homes, mm-hmm. a small kind of 
maybe struggling shopping centre. Uh, it's out in the middle of nowhere, like you have to be heading to Springfield to find it. And when you get there, it's nice, mm. but um, is it nice enough to shift to? That's probably the question that people are asking. Mm-hmm. And then you're talking about all this stuff that's to come. So I think from, so that was in 98, and then totally just transformed since then. So I think one of the biggest things that happened occurred quite soon after I came here was we managed to um, do a deal with the state government. And this had been a conversation going going on since before I came Mm -hmm. about how to bring the Centenary Highway to Springfield. Mm -hmm. And it was something that the government had did not was not contemplating in any form or shape or disguise and so it took a long time to have that conversation and for it to eventuate but was it a game-changing initiative it was totally game-changing mm-hmm. so it really changed how you commute to greater springfield and there's this journey we do every morning on the way to work and it's how many cars did you count on Centenary Highway right. today? Okay. <laughs> and consistently it was like 30 cars, 30 cars. Now, well, you can't even count. Right. Like that, that trip is just totally different now. And so that, that was one of the major game changes mm-hmm. for the project. Um, as I mentioned, soon after, we, um, soon after I came on board, the organisation had done a transaction with Delphin, okay. uh, who became Lendlease, yes. and that saw them coming on board to right. develop part of the residential areas of mm-hmm. Greater Springfield. And Delphin had this philosophy about lakes being integral to yes. how they uh, develop communities. They have a wonderful concept of creating communities, mm-hmm. and, and that's what, what um, drew us to them as, as developers. Mm-hmm. And it was a great partnership that we had and continues um, through uh, the Lend-Lease relationship. Um, that was the first time we created a sub- suburb beyond Springfield, right. so Springfield Lakes, and uh, we ultimately have six suburbs mm-hmm. in Greater Springfield. Uh, but Springfield Lakes was really a game-changer for the industry. That mm. They really looked upon this area as quite different, having a centenary highway coming straight into the project and then a lakeside concept of living um, in, a, in a corridor that's traditionally warm and, and you know, distant. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, with, the, with the onset of Springfield Lakes came, uh, right, came the uh, boom, property boom. Right. And uh, literally development as far as your eyes can see. Mm-hmm. I remember just we were driving around in the car and, and there's literally development as far as your eyes can see. And it's a pretty exciting time sure. in the project when you can see initiatives like that. And then we also managed to do a, a transaction with um, Greg Norman's Great mm-hmm. Enterprises that's part of Medalist and build a Greg Norman Design Golf Course, mm-hmm. Brookwater, and then commence the suburb of Brookwater, which mm-hmm. is... Um, a wonderful residential community that we have. And uh, uh, schools have always been a big part of our agenda, so from the very birth of our project, education was to be a pillar. Mm -hmm. And uh, since uh, the 90s, we've now seen 10 schools across 15 campuses. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say that is because some of those schools are P to 12 campuses, Mm -hmm. some are just primary schools. Yep, sure. Um, that's a mix of also state schools as well as private colleges. Mm-hmm. And so it gives a real good choice for people that are coming into this area. Mm. Uh, the other ga- gap that we always wanted to fill is when we first came to this corridor, there was no university in this city. Mm-hmm. 
and we really thought that that was a gap. And to, sending youth away from the city means that you lost them, whether they left at year 10 or year 12 or university. Um, that wasn't good for a sustainable city. And so we managed to work with uh, the University of Southern Queensland um, to help them to establish a campus here in Greater Springfield. And we've been extremely delighted to have them here as part of this community. It's transformed the education offering for this region and it's provided literally hundreds of kids the opportunity to attend tertiary mm -hmm. education near their home. And so do you think that when you came into the organisation, the vision was clear and strong that what it is today is very much in line with what was envisioned then, or is uh, or was uh, some of the, the development uh, more by fortuitous uh, opportunity rather than clear uh, early design? I think that there were these fundamental planks of the master plan that were always there mm -hmm. and that were believed into existence right. <laughs> to some extent because, you know, right from the early days when we were, you know, when I started, I remember Maha saying, just write to all the schools and see if they'll come here. Right. And that's kind of where it started. So mm -hmm. was that education pillar there from the start? Definitely. Mm -hmm. Was IT there as a pillar from the start? Absolutely. And then the other major pillar for the community is health. Mm -hmm. And so we talked about, you know, IT and innovation way before this, mm -hmm. you know, trend that has now emerged. We were uh, talking about it, you know, in the early 90s. And so something. what do you think it was that enabled you to have the foresight to be having those conversations substantively earlier than others were? I think our Chairman Maha Sinathambi is really a visionary and he saw, I guess he saw in this region an area that had been socially and economically depressed, mm -hmm. that if we had introduced these pillars uh, could possibly uplift the region. He's a person with a great um, social heart and connection to, you know, equality for our community. Mm -hmm. And these were pillars that he thought could really transform this mm. region. Okay. Okay, so that's uh, talking about Springfield. What about in terms of your own career then? Mm -hmm. it, uh, how did that evolve over that period? Well, I, I think, you know, I'm type of person. I like to be helpful. I'm just not here to finish at five o'clock and, mm -hmm. and run away. I have, I guess, improved myself by just throwing myself into things that I didn't necessarily mm -hmm. understand at first. So um, when I first came, Richard, I always remember we didn't have computers at every desk. Right. And this is after coming from Allen's. Right. Pretty good facilities yeah. and then no computers on every desk, which I found really interesting. <laughs> and, you know, then I was speaking to the chap, I, I, he wasn't an IT chap, but he was the person that, you know, yeah. looked after those types of things. And I said, oh, you know, do you think you could get email on the computers? <laughs> and he said, oh, look, I put the email on, but no one was using it, so right. I took it off. <laughs> and I'm just thinking, oh, my God, am I supposed to be a digital city? So, it, so you know, me and my sister worked on a proposal to bring um, computers into our office. Okay. So what was her role in the business at so the time? So she was like a commercial, commercial executive. Okay. So she's always been commercial sales, right. commercial leasing. Okay. That's her, like, it just 
runs in her veins. Right. And I'm totally not like that. But basically, we formed a little bit of a clique because I could do leases. Mm-hmm. Right. So and I could write contracts. So mm-hmm. we worked really closely together to help okay. those things come to life. Right. Yeah. But we also, you know, said we need computers, and right. so we put the proposal up. We had to put it up three times, but eventually got up there, and everyone right. got computers. But it was a big expense for our mm-hmm. organisation. Uh, okay, so uh, you got emails happening, you got computers <laughs> happening, got computers, got emails, and and look, look, when you do things like that, you just learn about stuff. Right. When USQ came here, you know, dealing with that education sector was totally new to me. Mm-hmm. Let's learn about how they do business, how how to make it easy for them to come on. Board. So, you know, it was about opening your mind to that industry and, and how to engage with that industry. I, yeah. I think it sounds simple, but, you know, I'm just a property lawyer. Sure. You know, we're a bunch of developers. You, you have to really work at engaging with your community, engaging mm-hmm. with different sectors that are important to mm-hmm. you and learning about their game and seeing how you can play with them yeah. um, to improve I guess our community Mm -hmm. and so um, I remember once I was on leave and one of our execs said oh look could you just help me document this deal it was about building essentially dark fibre to our project I didn't even know what dark fibre was but as soon as I entered the meeting which was essentially a lawyer's meeting to start to document it Mm -hmm. well it's a pretty big learning curve that you go through and you know just Putting yourselves in a position to, yes, you might not know everything, but you certainly open your mind to mm-hmm. how things are possible and learning enough about it to get deals over the line and mm-hmm. to improve our um, community for the residents and businesses that are here. Mm-hmm. And what about um, when you started to manage teams of people? I mean, mm-hmm. obviously you're managing the whole business now. So yeah. uh, how did your, your management leadership uh element of your role evolve? Yeah, well, I think I've had some very good mentors in um, Bob uh, mm-hmm. Sharpless and Mars and Bambi. They've been um, great mentors to, you know, to myself. And we're, because it was such a small family company that grew mm-hmm. quite, you know, um, organically, it's just enabled us to really want to keep that closeness amongst our team. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other skills that I've learned from them is about partnerships and how important partnerships are, mm-hmm. um, not only within our organisation but also with our external stakeholders. So one of the great things about our staff and all the little individual teams that make up that that staff is that they're drunk the Springfield Kool-Aid right. <laughs> and they're on board with the vision yeah. and I think ultimately if they weren't on board with the vision this organisation is probably not for them mm-hmm. and you know you do get people like sure. that ultimately that they're not they're not on board with the ideals that the project has mm-hmm. but pe- mostly our staff um, are engaged on this Greater Springfield journey they want to leave their own legacy in this project Mm -hmm. and um, our role is just about helping them get their little parts of the project together and Mm -hmm. to make it work Mm -hmm. and to drive their passion um, with our skills and talent and connections to make those things happen. Right and you stepped into the role of Managing Director in early 2013 so almost four years 
in, in that role. How long was it prior to that that you started to get an inkling that you know that's where your career was going to move to, being MD? Oh, like I think that was my ambition, really. Oh, like this right is... from the get-go? No, pro- probably not from the get-go. Okay. Because I think when I joined here, I, I wouldn't have known what's possible. Sure. And um, but but certainly ultimately when I was totally engaged with the project, mm-hmm. I thought, well, ultimately I see this as a, a life's work. Okay. <laughs> I'd like to get most of it done in, right. in our lifetime, and um, I do see that um, the, having the history of the project can add enormous value mm-hmm. to the project as mm-hmm. well, mm-hmm. and that connection with the community is something that's really important to to our organisation. So people really connect us, everyone here, mm-hmm. with this community. And if things go wrong in the community, it doesn't matter if it's a road or a school or a parkland, we will get the call yeah. about it. And so we're expected to provide some level of leadership to the community. And we can't fix everything. Mm-hmm. Um, there's obviously parts of our project that are now government controlled, whether mm-hmm. that's local government or state government. But they certainly look to us um, for um, our voice on certain issues and they want us to be actively involved. Okay. So at the time that you started to get pretty serious about thinking MD's where I want to be and you looked at your own skill set and you said, okay, I've got legal qualifications, I've been working on the project, so I've got that intrinsic, you know, um, historical reference point of how, but did you look at your own skill set and say, well, if I really want to do this, mm-hmm. there are attributes that I need to consciously develop in order to be able to do the role well? Yeah, de- definitely, like, even before I came here, I was very much, you know, a legal trained person, mm-hmm. and I... I think legal training is great because essentially it's a problem-solving technique Mm -hmm. that you learn and um, level of diplomacy and and looking at both sides of an argument and all the rest of it. Uh, But uh, I also did an MBA to really try to add and balance out Mm -hmm. that that, uh, legal training. And I think MBAs are great... Um, training it. The way I saw it is that it takes the blinkers off. Mm-hmm. That you look when you're a lawyer, you look at things very uh, in a certain way. But when you do an MBA, it opens your eyes to everything else that can affect an organisation. Mm-hmm. Um, so from that understanding of financials to marketing to organisational behaviour, these are things that you don't nec- well you don't come across in a law degree. No, that's and right. You don't necessarily have exposure to in an, a legal organisation. Yeah, I think the original intention of an MBA was to get, you know, a specialist engineer, lawyer, uh, who's moving into a leadership role and give them a taste of all of the various elements of being in uh, being a successful business person. But it's been um, changed over the years and now they're encouraging young people with undergraduate business degrees to almost immediately move into an MBA and in many respects to valuing the qualification. Um, but like you, you know, uh, I think an MBA is a very uh, important part of becoming a well-rounded leader. Okay, so you had, you had the, the mentoring from the board, you had some formal education. And, and, and what about, what were some of the other things that you drew yeah, upon? I think, look, the, one of the biggest learnings that we have done as an organisation and, and just myself personally mm-hmm. is to uh, learn by observing other similar master plan communities. Mm-hmm. And these are master plan communities that 
might have failed mm -hmm. or might have failed in one area or were a roaring success. Mm -hmm. And so when we uh, first started the project, we did look around the world. When we started the golf course, we went on a separate trip to look at golf, the best golf communities, body corporate structures, homeowners clubs, things like that, things that made those communities a success. Mm -hmm. So we have invested as an organisation a lot of time uh, with looking at those massive communities, either ourselves as you know, just interested observers, um, spending time travelling to, to go to some of those projects, and also with some industry bodies that have led um, trips to these organisations mm -hmm. and then exposed some of the kind of secrets behind right. those projects okay. and the learnings that came out of those projects that could help people like us mm -hmm. succeed. Okay. And uh, were there particular things happening at a global level or elsewhere in the world that you looked at and you went, wow, we'd really love to incorporate that in what we're doing here? Yeah, I guess we saw some projects that, that achieved everything that we wanted. Right. But that got something wrong. So, so one of the ones we always admired was one called Reston, which okay. is just outside of Washington, D.C., and um, it had got so many parts right, we loved it so much, but the one part it got wrong is it, it missed the retail component, okay. and it went right on their edges to almost distract the economy of the broader city. Right. And so it was a, it was a good learning experience, we mm. don't want that to happen sure. to us, and yeah. let's get the master planning right. Um, so we definitely saw some trends emerging in how retail was being developed. Mm -hmm. And so we didn't do retail ourselves, but we wanted to make sure when we found a retail partner that we introduced them to some concepts that we thought were going to be very integral to how retail was developed. Mm -hmm. And so one, one of them was a Main Street concept, which ended up being something incorporated in the Ryan Shopping Centre. Yeah. And then just some little things like cosmetic changes or, mm -hmm. or aspects that you incorporate into a project um, that make all the difference right. like, in a small way. So, um, for example, the fencing in the golf course. Right. Like, yes, you should have some level of fencing between the course and residential mm -hmm. land. What does that fencing look like? Mm -hmm. Is it chain wire? Is it a white fence? Is it a black fence? And, you know, so it was by looking at a number of examples that I guess we picked how we would deal with it on the course. Mm -hmm. And those things, as I said, they're just cosmetic things. But cosmetics is essentially what we all you know buy sure. a house for yeah that we fall in love with the environment the area how it's maintained and how it's going to look into the future mm -hmm. so those are things those are little and sort of big things that we've picked up along the way by informing ourselves about what's going on right our borders. okay sure and so when you originally stepped into the role of managing director what was the mandate you know, um, it's a passing of the baton onto you uh, to take the, um, the business into the future. What were some of the clearly articulated goals that, you know, you were to achieve? Yeah, so I guess, um, you know, our chairman and deputy chairman have, have this has been a labour of love and life for them. Mm -hmm. Like, they really put their neck on the line to bring Greater Springfield to where it is. And ultimately, they want it developed as quickly as possible with no compromise to the master plan. Mm -hmm. So they have a clear vision and um, view about how we deliver things in Greater Springfield. Mm -hmm. And very much they're here to see that the vision's delivered, mm -hmm. but they want 
myself and the organisation to be the arms and legs that delivers that true to the vision. Mm-hmm. When you do property development, and, and as you'd know from GFCs and things, they're, they're, this is a cycle, this is an industry with cycles. Yes. And it's very easy to compromise when things are in the downturn. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, what, what we've learned is that because the, of the life of this project and the time that we all were here, mm. you can't afford to muck up when the down cycles come. Right. You can't afford to compromise on the vision. Sure. So really the um, owners, the chairman and deputy chairman, want me to deliver on the vision mm-hmm. and to create a well-rounded organisation that can help um, deliver that vision because mm-hmm. I'm only one person mm-hmm. um, but to build an organisation with the capability, the um, passion and the care factor to deliver what they have in mind mm-hmm. for this region. Okay and when you think about almost four years into the role now over that time if there was a particular key achievement or something that you'd hang your hat on you'd say well this is a you know I'm really proud of what I was able with my team to do here you know what would what would be an example of oh, that? Look it was it probably predates the MD role but what, one of the things I'm a little bit proud of is um, the project getting a FIABC pre-excellence award so mm-hmm. it's an international award mm-hmm. for the project and <laughs> Why I, why I take some pleasure in it is because we have won quite a few awards and one year we were very fortunate to win um, a national UDI award and mm-hmm. a national PCA award and we did tell one of the industry alumni luminaries about this award right. and he said to us, you know, you have done nothing <laughs> until you have won a VFC Pretty Excellent so, you know, we debated in here about what was the right time. Mm-hmm. There wasn't agreement about okay. that. And, but I sort of thought I'd take up the cudgel and, right. and try to win that. Yeah. And it's on the world stage. Sure. And so it was a bit, a bit out there and gathered a, a few team people to help with that. Mm-hmm. And they were under the pump. Um, and we pulled it together and we... Um, my team came to see me one day and said, oh, Raina, they closed the door, which is always a bad sign. Right. I would worry about times like that. And they said, Raina, um, we just got some news. Look, we're going to have to um, call a purchase order for 500 bucks because we didn't allow for this when we um, lodged the application for FIAMSI. Right. And I was just going, what are you guys talking about, like... And I was trying to already thinking to myself, how am I going to explain the five hundred bucks I'm going to be asking for? <laughs> and essentially, it was kind of some fee or something that we had to pay as part of winning the award. Right. So they'd got the call, we uh-huh. won the award, we had to essentially pay this fee to get a table okay. at the award ceremony. Right. And so then we were sort of screaming silently in the room because <laughs> the next message was, we can't tell anyone until right. you get to the award. Oh, right. <laughs> so it was. Uh, I think I was pretty proud of that. And I'm, I'm proud of how the organisation um, fought its way through the GFC because it mm-hmm. was tough for mm-hmm. everyone in the property industry. Mm-hmm. And it was um, tough for us to, you know, hold the team together and um, plough through it mm. because you put a lot of pressure on yourself to deliver to very high standards mm-hmm. and you don't want to compromise the vision, which is so easy to do. And um, we came out the other end 
and the project is all the much you know stronger for it. Um, having now got rail, it set the the project in motion for a whole lot of economic changes mm. within a short period of time. Yeah, I mean uh, that's a substantive uh, change, isn't it? To have rail now as well as the uh, the centenary highway means that you know it. It's unlimited in terms of what you can create here. It yeah, must be very, very exciting. Much so. it, it's a step change. It's a massive step change mm-hmm, for the project. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we have had step changes along the way, but mm-hmm. you know, one of the exciting things for us is when we heard they're going to call the line Springfield Line. Right. And I mean, that's the best marketing you could ever of course, hope for absolutely. because how many commuters would see this? Mm-hmm. As a you know, as a place now, like one of the things that you always say when you create a new development is somehow you've got to get yourself on the map mm-hmm. and allow people to see that you know you're there. And so having yourself a, as a the name of a line, <laughs> a train line, well, that certainly helps. Definitely. getting yourself on the map. Absolutely. Yeah. A big part of uh, this podcast is for people who have achieved great mm-hmm. outcomes in their career to share some of their insights. Mm-hmm. Um, You've talked around a a range of things that have enabled you to achieve what you have in your career to date, but if uh, you were addressing people who had the aspiration to step into a CEO or a managing director role, what have been some of your key learnings along the way that you think have helped you to do that? I think um, partnerships, I think that's been a key to the success of our project and Mm -hmm. for me personally too. Um, and I call partnerships anything from the people that you work with on a day-to-day basis in your team mm-hmm. to external stakeholders that, mm-hmm. that essentially are an extension of your team. I think if you don't value your partners, um, that, that doesn't get you anywhere. Partners are just the key to the survival and nurturing and spending time on those partnerships will never, ever be a waste of time. I think that's key. I think, you know, for me, um, to take every opportunity. So you mentioned before, have some things happen by fluke or luck or Mm -hmm. something like that. Yes and no, because if you didn't take the opportunity, then you wouldn't have created the luck. Mm -hmm. So I I almost think we get so many people coming through to Springfield presenting opportunities to us. Mm -hmm. And it is about kind of exploring as much as you can and seeing what's possible. Because we've created things like the data centre, Paris Data Centre, one of our most significant assets. Um, None of us knew what a data centre was. Mm. And if you don't kind of um, embrace, I guess, change, uh, innovation, um, opportunities, then you'll never see the possibility of what might be at the other end. Mm -hmm. And I, of course, know that you have to do that with some sort of discerning eye as well. But... um, I guess never. We, we've been the type of person. I've certainly been the type of person. So let's let's give it a go. Right. Kind of what have we got to lose? And yeah. Kind of weigh it up in, in that respect. And for myself, just um, when I've been presented with an opportunity to say, "Why don't you do this?" I've always tried to take it up mm-hmm. because I just think that many people don't get those opportunities. Mm. So whether it's as being part of an industry body or um, sitting on a board, um, those kind of experience can add immense value to your knowledge base, but also expose you to a network of people and contacts that might help you later in your life or mm-hmm. in your organisation. Oh, definitely. I think that, uh, you know, I, I interview a number of uh, significant non-executive directors 
and typically uh, they have achieved that success by being of service and yes. and grabbing those opportunities when they present, yep. um, knowing that it will eventually leverage them into the portfolio career that they want at the latter stage of their career. Yep. And a uh, nice sort of segue into, I mean, you mentioned earlier that Springfield really is job for life for you, or, you know, uh, it could well be. But when you look to the future in terms of your own professional development and what you'd like to achieve from a career perspective, what are the things that you're excited about? Well, I definitely see like there's so much more that we want to deliver in Springfield. So I sort of say to people, yes, this might be all good now, but we're going to go even better. So I look forward to creating that opportunity Mm -hmm. and lifestyle and opportunity for people and to really make this like a beacon in Mm -hmm. the property industry. Um, The next place we want to take our project is really to expose it on an international stage Mm -hmm. and when I say that we do believe that the next um, swage swave of um, partnerships that we'll do are with international Mm organisations so whether that's in health uh, development education we do see many more opportunities which we're working on now that will be the next phase of our project and I think will provide immense opportunities for people here And potentially an opportunity for you to practice your Japanese. Yeah, maybe. I've, I've had a few occasions on which I've been able to use it. You might have to start good. to learn Chinese instead. Yeah, uh, maybe Mandarin. that too. Maybe oh, that's that great. Too. And yeah. final question before I let you get on with your day. Uh, we've talked a lot about work today mm-hmm. and your career, but you know, when you're not working, what are the things that you like to get up to? Well, definitely family comes mm-hmm. first, I think, um, you know, because we spend so much time at work, even mm-hmm. though my family is here, <laughs> um, I still value all the time that I spend with my family. Mm-hmm. And um, then I've become a bit of a triathlon hack. Oh, and really? I say hack because I'm no good at all, but I, um, I have a trainer that got me into triathlons right. maybe about four years ago. And then once you've got bitten by the bug, mm-hmm. it's very hard to um, give it up. Right. But, but it's also a really exciting form of training because mm-hmm. you are not doing one thing all sure. the time. Yeah. And also through um, just just being active, you meet so many people and you have mm-hmm. so many experiences. So with hand in hand with her, she's encouraged me need to do all sorts of crazy, right. crazy things. You're training, you mean? My trainer, yeah. yeah. My, so from triathlons, she even got um, my mum and I to do this climb up um, Mount Kinabalu. Oh, yes. So we've done a few things like that. And, and of course, I enjoy being active and, um, you know, just uh, making sure that healthy mind, healthy body. Absolutely. Well, that's excellent. So before we finish up, anything that we haven't discussed that you were keen to share with the audience? Look, look, I think um, you kind of lose perspective sometimes with all the skills that you accumulate mm-hmm. in life. Um, and I've been fortunate enough to sit on not-for-profit boards, you know, government advisory uh, bodies, um, and then, of course, company boards mm-hmm. and things like that. And just the value of um, giving your own expertise, I think... People lose perspective about how much skills they've accumulated sure. in life, and I think if you can give use those skills to give a bit back, mm-hmm. uh, th- I think I've done a bit of that. Mm-hmm. But I think that's where I think I'd l- I've learnt um, at this age <laughs> that 
Well, I've, I've probably got a few things that could help a few people. Mm. And um, I would encourage others to do the same because I see a look at people all around and I think you're amazing. Mm. It doesn't matter what walk of life, um, you know, if, whether you're a teacher or a, um, a worked in a small business or a huge business, there's these little gems that you acquire in your mm-hmm. life and you know what, someone else needs those mm. gems. Absolutely. Uh, and if you could share a bit of that knowledge with others... Uh, again, whether it's students or business or uh, not-for-profit sector, um, everyone would be better off. Excellent advice. And uh, on that note, thanks again for your time. It's been a pleasure talking to you and have a great afternoon. Thanks, Richard. Well, thanks again for joining me today on the Arate podcast. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I'm looking forward to having you along for future episodes And in the meantime, have a fantastic week.